Welcome to the Fright Lab. I'm Lucas Yoakum. And with us is our intrepid producer, Joseph Wren. Good evening, all you gruesome people. So, we've all heard the phrase, life imitates art. It's a nice sentiment, but let's be honest, that doesn't really happen that frequently. More often than not, it's real life affecting art. And here in the Fright Lab, we're really interested in the intersection of real events, philosophical and sociological concepts, and horror media. We think that there's a lot of connection here, but not too many people are wanting to talk about them. So today, we're going to talk about a pair of films that I have pretty mixed feelings about. Abel Ferrara's Ms. 45 and 1980's Maniac, directed by William Lustig. Now, these two films catch a time and a place, but at a cost, mainly at the amount of time you'll spend feeling uneasy afterwards. Now, I'm going to avoid spoiling too much of the plots of these films, despite them both being more than 40 years old. And now would be a good time to make a quick note for the audience. These films depict, in pretty ugly ways, acts of violence and, very specifically, sexual violence. If you're not okay with that sort of thing, just skip these movies. No one's going to hold that against you. So with that out of the way, let's talk Ms. 45. Abel Ferrara is a director I mostly don't enjoy. He's absolutely directed some important films, such as Bad Lieutenant with Harvey Keitel. But to be honest, I'm really not a fan of Ferrara's work. My introduction to his movies was through The Driller Killer, which you seem to either really love or really dislike, and I obviously fall into that latter category. He did King of New York also, right? Uh, yeah, that's Abel Ferrara. But Ms. 45 is kind of a mesmerizing film. This is due in large part because of the portrayal of our protagonist, Thana, by Zoe Lund, then known under her maiden name of Zoe Tamerlis. Now, uh, she did go through several iterations of her name throughout her life. I think I'm just going to call her Zoe Lund. That's how I know of her anyway. So to avoid confusion, we're just going with Zoe Lund. We mean Zoe Tamerlis. You, you get the idea. Zoe Lund is absolutely mesmerizing on screen. Given her portrayal, it's almost hard to imagine that Zoe Lund was only 17 at the time of the filming and that this was her first movie. We're going to talk more about her for a bit, but I want you to keep that in mind. 17 years old, first time on film when she made this movie. So the film opens on the Garment District of New York City. Filmed in 1980, this film exudes grit. Here we meet a group of women working as seamstresses working in a fashion designer shop. We focus in on Zoe Lund's Thana, a mute young woman who is about to have the worst day of her life. Specifically, Thana is sexually assaulted twice in one day. It's extremely unpleasant to watch. Even though director Abel Ferrara shows some minor restraint, these scenes are mercifully short. The, the first assault leaves Thana deeply shaken and very scared. But the second sexual assault, shown mere moments later, ends with Thana taking her attacker's life, then dismembering his body. Still with me? Okay. So, Thana holds on to her attacker's gun, the film's namesake 45 caliber pistol. And in short order, Thana is turning this gun on every man she meets who raises her ire. Now, with all that out of the way, 
It'd be easy to suspect that this movie is little more than pointless, exploitative trash, little more than a blip on the radar. And yet, there is something extremely compelling about this film. It's not an easy watch, but it is gorgeously shot. Ferrara really does have an impressive command of film as a medium, uh, despite this being fairly early in his career. Ms. 45 shows off prodigious talent, and that says nothing of Zoe Lund. So anyway, uh, back to Zoe Lund. She was a unique talent, one of those just naturally gifted actors just straight out of the gate. She's on screen in this movie about 75% of the film's runtime without any dialogue at all. She has a tough role to fill here, and her physicality is unreal. She conveys this tiny, mousy weakness in the film's opening act, but by the opening of the film's third act, Thana moves like a highly evolved reptilian predator. She exudes a cold, vicious menace. But I've got to be honest, watching this film is also somewhat heartbreaking. Zoe Lund unfortunately passed away in 1999, a heart failure due to a lifelong drug use issue. It's kind of a sad coda to what I think should have been a really long and storied film career. Needless to say, I really appreciate this movie, and there's a lot to like. For instance, the young women who work in the shop with Thana, they are super relatable. For those of us who came up in punk, in metal, or in a goth scene, you know women like them. They're brassy, they're hilarious, and they seem to really relate to one another. Their acting might not be like the best on the planet, but it does feel incredibly natural. And the final scene where Thana is attending a Halloween party dressed as a nun is, in one word, iconic for indie horror and exploitation fans. In many regards, this film is an urtext for so many of the nastier bits of horror throughout the 80s and 90s. But we need to talk about some of the harder bits in this film. The obvious one, which we've already talked about for a little bit, are the two scenes of sexual assault early in the runtime, especially the first one, where the attacker is played by none other than, drum roll please, Abel Ferrara, the director. Oh, come on. Yeah, look, maybe it was out of necessity for like budget or time or something like that, but it feels really gross for some reason. And what is it with directors doing this shit, right? For instance, Dario Argento has been in his own films committing some of the murders on screen, albeit from out of frame. And that says nothing of Mel Gibson in The Passion of the Christ nailing Jim Caviezel as Jesus to the cross. Maybe there's some religious message there about Gibson being a guilty sinner and all, but let's get real. That just feels kind of fucky to me. And at long last, we need to say this about the movie Ms. 45. Phil the dog doesn't deserve half the trouble he gets in this movie. Hashtag justice for Phil. I think what you're talking about is directors just not finding the right person to depict the murder or the assault in a way that they see it in their head, which that says a lot about the emotion of these films and a different version of that is what Quentin Tarantino did in Inglorious Bastards where you weren't strangling her correctly so I'm going to do it for you yeah I mean that says nothing of course of Quentin Tarantino's weird foot fetish that is clearly obvious 
you know what I'm talking about. But I, I think there's a value in that, right? Like, on one hand, I kind of get uh, a director wanting a particular... Uh, a particular role, a particular thing done correctly. I don't think there's anything inherently wrong with that. Uh, there's that classic story from uh, Lord of the Rings, the second Lord of the Rings film, where Peter Jackson was attempting to correct Christopher Lee about the sound he would be making once he got stabbed in the back. And Christopher Lee turned to him and said, uh, according to legend, said to him, that is not the sound a man makes when you stab him in the back. And you then remember that Christopher Lee was a Nazi hunter with the British government during World War II. And it's like, oh, okay, well, he knows a thing or two about what it sounds like to stab a man in the back, I guess. But it is one of those things with uh, Ferrara doing this particular role and guys like Argento being a murderer in their movies. Again, maybe with guys like Ferrara or Argento, they were they had a budget, they had a time constraint. Maybe that's it. But there's a little part of me that goes like, you were really hot to stab some people, weren't you? Like, Wow, you really wanted to see some women get choked today, didn't you? <laughs> yeah. It's rough, man. It's fucking rough. Which brings us to our second film, Maniac, released in 1980 by William Lustig. The name William Lustig is jumping out at you, Gorehounds. Lustig directed all three of the Maniac cop films, along with the wildly underrated Uncle Sam in 1996. As a person... I don't believe in guilty pleasures, and I also don't hold people's quote-unquote problematic favorites against them. If you like horror at all, eventually you will find something that you love that is also questionable on some level. But Maniac is skirting as close to the position of guilty pleasure for me as is possible. The movie is the most brutal sort of character study. It's a sleazy piece of work that frankly takes no prisoners, and this is no small feat to pull off. Let me explain. Maniac is another piece of 80s gritty New York exploitation cinema. The movie really is also a vehicle for legendary character actor Joe Spinell. And you've seen him before. He's in The Godfather 1 and 2, Rocky, Taxi Driver. You'll know him when you see him. Spinell also helped write and co-executive produce Maniac. We'll talk about that more later. Joe Spinell plays serial killer Frank Zito, the very image of a schlubby nobody turned vicious monster, looking more unemployed uncle than Carl Panzram. But make no mistake, Spinell unleashes his not insignificant acting chops in this role. Just mere minutes into Maniac, we experience the depth of Frank Zito's depravity. He viciously murders women, from sex workers to nurses, it seems that the crimes of being either conventionally attractive or involved in sex work is enough to ignite Zito's violence. But this movie does a pretty neat trick. About halfway through, the pace slows all the way down all of a sudden, turning into a look at the struggle of that kind of a character. Frank Zito is a monster, but there are little glimpses of him being genuinely charming and warm. This is all aided by Lustig's genuinely inspired direction. Standout moment of this movie for me. Zito is loading up his gear for a night of murder and mayhem. On a table, he has weapons. A shotgun, a machete, a bayonet. You get the idea. And his home is less a place of refuge and more an art gallery for his madness. But amidst all this nightmarish accoutrement on the table, there's an open box of Cracker Jacks that he's snacking on. This tiny little moment is just so genuinely human 
you know, it'd be sort of touching and funny in a way if he weren't about to commit one of the best kills in horror movies of its era, which is an absolutely gore-soaked attack created by and guest-starring FX icon Tom Savini. Like Zoe Lund's Thana, Spinell portrays Chuck Zito almost as a sympathetic character. There are these little moments that you just feel the smallest shred of understanding for such a pathetic creature. This is typically immediately blown out by some hideous, sweat-soaked bit of aggression. And this is also sort of the polar opposite of Ms. 45, where Zoe Lund's Thana starts as this doe-eyed innocent and slowly turns into this nightmarish snake of a killer, and it's removed from her earlier, more understandable motives. Thana's violence degrades into obvious ego gratification. Chuck Zito's violence is never justified, but it's kind of understandable in some perverse way. So why are we talking about such nasty subject matter? I know you tuned in to hear me talk about horror movies, and I hear you therefore saying it. Lucas, so what? The first time I watched Ms. 45, I was genuinely surprised. I had no expectation of appreciating this film, let alone finding any sort of significant aesthetic pleasure in it. Something about this movie, though, made me very uneasy. Not in the, well, I just watched a really fucked up horror movie kind of way, but more in a, why does this seem so familiar to me kind of way. Something about it gave me real deja vu, or maybe just reminded me of something else. By that point, I'd already seen Maniac, and it gave me a similar but slightly different sensation. I guessed at the time that it was just the setting and the violent subject matter. I'm a horror movie guy, right? So this shouldn't be that much of a surprise. Well, then it hit me. Abel Ferrara is synonymous with New York City in many ways, and William Lustig's Maniac is a brilliant showing of that seedy underbelly of New York City during that time period. Specifically, both of these movies are from the very beginning of the 1980s, one of the most violent periods in the city's history, arguably. It was, after all, only a few short years after the reign of the Son of Sam. For the uninitiated, David Berkowitz, a.k.a. the Son of Sam, is a serial killer who committed his crimes from July of 1976 through July of 1977. Berkowitz stabbed one victim, but the majority of his crimes were committed with a 44 caliber revolver, seemingly killing at random in New York City. Berkowitz would later go on to be a member of that strange fraternity that make up the canon of modern American serial killers. But at the time, most reports indicate a level of panic in New York City that is hard to put into modern context. The closest reference I can maybe make is the DC sniper killings in October of 2002. So with that in mind, was Abel Ferrara thinking of the Son of Sam murders when he made Ms. 45? It seems pretty incontrovertible to me that Joe Spinell was thinking about the killing of John Lennon in New York in the 1980s, as well as the Son of Sam. In an article on the website Cinema Cobb, author Stephen West writes that Joe Spinell helped cobble together a number of character traits and MOs from a number of serial killers at the time. And in an eerily prescient way, the film also predicts the crimes of NY native Joel Rifkin, along with the, uh, hmm, creative use of a mannequin by Jeffrey Dahmer, 
We'll include a link for that article in the show notes. It's also a pretty touching biography of Joe Spinell, and it's kind of worth your attention. So back to our original point, right? Life seldom imitates art. But the story is older than the 1970s and 80s. In fact, one of horror's important early monsters has his roots in a sleepy town of Plainfield, Wisconsin. Robert Block, the author of Psycho, based his now legendary character of Norman Bates on Ed Gein. If that name rings a bell, maybe you've heard of some other kind of popular horror flicks, uh, namely The Silence of the Lambs and The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, because the villain of these films also shares some inspiration from Ed Gein. Gein's particular brand of darkness is far too polymorphous to discuss in such a small space. There are several good articles and podcasts about Ed Gein that are worthy of your attention, and I'll put some links into the show notes for you. Suffice it to say, one needs to rob a few graves and murder a few fellow townsfolk in order to earn a spot in horror history. But because his crimes are so bizarre, it's rather hard to talk about him. I don't want to dwell too long on the subject, as I might be saving this movie for another episode, but he also recalls for me Fritz Honka, uh, a German serial killer from the 1970s. Uh, he's the subject of a kind of biographical flick called The Golden Glove. It's a good movie, and if you can get a copy, you should check it out. But a word of warning, tread lightly with that one. It's, it's rough. So this is a subject we could spend a pretty shocking amount of time on. Biopics like the one I just mentioned could genuinely fill many hours of conversation. Virtually every quote-unquote major serial killer, which is a pretty dubious distinction in my opinion, ends up with at least one movie made about them to varying results. But isn't that sort of outside the confines of this discussion? You know, all of this is well and good, but we are left with something, well, special is maybe the wrong word. Uh, a special case in the sense of unique or perhaps highly aberrant. Definitely not special in the sense of a good, unusual thing. For those of you who like it weird and like dark stuff, this argument won't come as much of a surprise, though admittedly I am a little loath to talk about it. Back in the 1970s and 1980s, there was a lot of fear about the existence of something called snuff films. I found a solid, concise description of a snuff film uh, in an article from Fangoria, published in 2021. Joe, would you read that description for us? Regarding snuff films, they are considered films in which a person is killed on camera. The death is premeditated with the purpose of being filmed in order to make money. Oftentimes, there is a sexual aspect to the murder, either on film, as in a porn scene that ends horribly, or that the final project is used for sexual gratification. For the vast majority of modern history, snuff films were an urban legend. Uh, kind of an interesting side story, Charlie Sheen allegedly thought he found one in the 1980s. Uh, he apparently had called, I believe, the FBI about it, except that it wasn't real. It was actually kind of an extreme splatter horror Japanese film called Guinea Pig, Flower of Flesh and Blood. I love that name. I think it's gross, but I love that name. Anyway, snuff films stayed kind of in the realm of urban legend. As the internet became more widespread, more shock-hungry types might find the odd bit of like war crimes caught on film or injuries that ended up being broadcast. But that's not, in the strictest sense of the term, a snuff film, right? And 
painter Luca Magnata. How do we describe Luca Magnata? Um, failed model and adult film star, narcissist, and overall douchebag. But just being another person in front of a camera, Luca craved, I don't know, man, recognition, fame, regard. You know, it's hard to say what his motivations really were, and I honestly would feel pretty disgusted if I started to get Luca Magnata's motivations. It began with public hoaxes, claiming to be in a relationship with a serial killer. It escalated to harming animals, filming it, and then uploading it to the internet. But Luca Magnata crossed the line in May of 2012 when he uploaded a legitimate video of him murdering a man named Jun Lin to the internet. Thankfully, he was caught not long after that. The story is almost too crazy to believe, and I, I guess we can be thankful that it's the subject of a documentary series called Don't Fuck With Cats. If you're interested in this story, that docuseries is on Netflix, and it will be linked in the show notes. Also, uh, the CBC, they do a series called The Fifth Estate. Uh, they released an episode called Hunting Luca Magnata, and I'll link that as well. It's a really great summary of that whole story if you're interested. Luca Magnata genuinely released a snuff film into the world. Life imitating art, I suppose, if you don't mind sullying the word art with such a concept. Plenty of fictional movies have been made talking about snuff films, like 8mm starring Nicolas Cage. It's a fine watch, I guess, if you're wanting more of, well, that sort of thing. Yeah, who needs a shower after that? History is full of monsters. One doesn't need to go any farther than their local library to find some true bastards. Could someone make a horror movie using the alleged crimes of Gilles de Rey as an inspiration? We all love Dracula, right? Well, how about a really good film depiction of the real history of Vlad the Impaler? And so on. I'm not typically an optimist, but I feel pretty confident in saying that the internet is exposing artists to new bastards every day. And who knows what that might inspire next, right? So what do you think? Are you going to plan a Ms. 45 Maniac double feature night? Do you know of any good horror movies using actual events or characters for inspiration? What's your favorite horror film based on reality? If you have questions or comments about the show, please contact us at thefrightlabpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening. The Fright Lab is written by me, Lucas Shokum, and it's performed by me and one Mr. Joseph Wren. Good evening, all you gruesome people. <laughs> I said that at the top. All right, let's get a little fucking true crime up in here. And, we, and we're gonna have to change. We're, I'm gonna have to get some kind of real '80s like news news feed thing for this because <laughs> you're because you're going real, right? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. This is this is all true. Nothing. And, ever, and, but, and I keep waiting for my chance to say so. This is like the opposite of Lady Terminator. <laughs> I, when you find a second to drop that line in there, you have to drop a Lady Terminator line in there. It's it's, it's going to happen, man. Okay, so. Isn't it biopics? Let me reread that line. Because it could be either one. I don't <laughs> I'm just asking. <laughs> I, I actually don't know off the top Biopics. Of... This fucker didn't write this. He's <laughs> reading it off a piece of paper. Ha ha. Wrong, asshole. I'm reading it off of a tablet. <laughs> That's my tablet. Ah, right. So. I wrote over the keyboard. <laughs> All right, let's try this again. <laughs> <laughs>